Hello and welcome to Black, Brown, and Bilingue, where our mission is to unite the black and brown communities through education, storytelling, and community engagement. The vision of Black, Brown, and Bilingue is to be part of creating a world in which Black and Brown identities are affirmed, bilingualism and biculturalism are nurtured, and equity is the driving force behind all that we do. Thank you for joining us again today. I am Lisette Jacobson, and I am one of your hosts. And I'm Maurice McDavid. I'm your other host. I am thrilled to introduce um, our next guest. It has been... Um, for me, like a long time coming, it's been an, a bucket list item. Um, and so we are thrilled to have Felix Sanchez with us today. For over 25 years, Felix Sanchez has worked at the intersection of politics and entertainment, promoting Hispanic and other diverse voices in the media. He co-founded the National Hispanic Foundation for the Arts, NHFA, in 1997 with actors Jimmy Smits, Sonia Braga, Esai Morales, who is so cute, and Miguel Julia. The organization seeks to advance the presence of Latinos in the media, telecommunications, and entertainment industries. Since its inception, NHFA has served the nation through diversity promotion, groundbreaking studies, graduate school partnerships, talent and content development, patronizing the arts, promoting civil rights in the digital age, training corporations, and monitoring the media. Felix has also served on the national presidential campaigns and worked on Capitol Hill. The National Hispanic Foundation for the Arts is the leading national Hispanic organization to advance the presence of Latinos in the media, telecommunications, and entertainment industries. Welcome to Black, Brown, and Bilingue. Felix Sanchez, welcome to Black, Brown, and Bilingue. Thank you, Lisa and Maurice. I'm really happy to be here. Thank you again for joining us. We are, uh, again, very excited to have you um, and, and just uh, amazed at uh, the work uh, that, that you have done. Um, and I think it is really important work and, and perhaps work that I didn't even think about how important it was until I started to read uh, some of the things that you've written and, and, um, and to watch some of the, the the specials and all of a sudden it hit me like no this is important work how much of culture is impacted uh by the things that we see in entertainment and, and some of those things so uh felix a lot of the work that that you do um you kind of focus or center around this idea of underrepresentation. can you talk a little bit about that what that means to your work and and why this is indeed important work that you're doing well you know so much of this is really foundational to the Latino community, to all of our communities of color, precisely because Hollywood builds a narrative and, and they define who we are. And they've defined who we are in various ways over time. I mean, it's no wonder that Asian Americans are suffering the kind of injustice that they are suffering, not just because of the COVID virus, but historically their portrayal in television and in film has you know, made them very subservient and very cartoonish. And, and these are roles that you know, uh, Hollywood created. Think about Charlie Chan and all of those early, you know, 50s, 60s films that continue to perpetuate this kind of uh, uh, image. So we know what it's done for the black community and the Latino community. We know the tropes and the stereotypes that are out there. And the only way that it changes is by us being able to tell authentic, original stories. And that is, you know, the, the conundrum that goes on here. I mean, um, the University of California, Southern California did a study in which they looked at Latino portrayal over 12 years. And out of that numbers of ethnic and racial roles that they found, Latinos were about 4.7% of the total of, of actors in films of the top 100 films over 12 years, where we are 18.5% of the population. So you see the disparity that goes on, and it doesn't take much to light a match. 
And I think that's what we saw in the previous administration. They lit the match to what was already a bonfire ready to occur. And so, you know, the struggle now is to regain our own identity and to present it in a way that shows us who we are today, not who people imagined us to be 50 years ago. Mm-hmm. You know, um, in one of your specials, you talk about um, how for Latinos, there's um, representation that comes in little bursts. Right? Yes. And I started to reflect, like, who were those role models that I saw growing up? You know, I immediately thought of like Edward James Olmos, who I love. I thought about then kind of like Selena and then after Selena, like who has then J-Lo. So it just, it has happened in little bursts, but for, especially for Mexican Americans, because we are the biggest population within the Latino community. Mm-hmm. Yet I feel like we get so underrepresented in the media. Why do you think that is for in particular to the, to the Mexicanos and Mexicanas? Yeah. I think for a long time, Hollywood thought Latinos don't watch English language TV, they watch Spanish language TV. And so they didn't understand the multiculturalism, they didn't understand the multi-generational issue that comes in as a component. And I, I remember, I think it was 1999, I was talking with the president, the then president of ABC Entertainment, And we were talking about the success of Desperate Housewives and Eva Longoria's role. And I said to him, and mind you, these are individuals who know Hollywood, the history in minutiae. I mean, they could get on Jeopardy and win every category because they know it so well. And I said to him, do you realize that Eva Longoria is the most recognizable and visible Latina ever on TV. And he was shocked and he said, what do you mean? I said, tell me another actress who is Latina, who is from television, not film or Broadway, but just television who has had a bigger footprint than Eva is having on Desperate Housewives. And and of course there was no answer that, you know, there were others who had tiny little roles here and there. There was a character uh, from Marcus Welby, MD, uh, who played a nurse, uh, Elena, on the, on the show. But she was not a lead. And she was not at the level of, you know, of what Eva had, uh, had, had done. And it showed how desperate people were to see those kinds of images, how Latinos flocked to the television, how authentically she portrayed herself, how she wouldn't, you know, budged from her identity, you know, how she insisted on, on being, uh, you know, culturally who she was throughout the show. And that was a huge turning point because previously Jessica Alba, for example, was in a show called Dark Angel on Fox. And when we were talking with Fox and they were putting together their demographics in terms of how many Latino actors and writers and directors they had, they listed her as multicultural. And I said to the head of diversity at Fox, why do you list her as multicultural? And she says, because she self-identifies as multicultural. And agent and managers would tell their, 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 their you know, actors, do not get yourself in a pigeonhole. And they didn't want her to be, you know, because they knew that being playing a Latina on TV was a bad, you know, it was all downhill. There was no upside. Right. She'd be typecast. She would be typecast because that's all it had been in the past. Mm. So, so much of this is that people were fighting a system that wouldn't allow them to be outside of the parameters of their roles. I mean, one of the few has been Rita Moreno, you know, who was able to translate her acting, you know, life into very different uh, mainstream roles. But, you know, this, it happened so late in life for her. Think about how long it took for her. Think about Isai Morales, who in 1987, he did La Bamba, mm-hmm. and La Bamba, um, La Bamba was uh, made a hundred million worldwide. And in that, uh, in 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 the sh- in the in the uh, the the film, uh, you know, was worldwide a success. But he could not find 
roles that, you know, brought him forward until he did Ozark mm -hmm. and is now going to play another villain uh, in Mission Impossible 7. But, I mean, he's going to play opposite Tom Cruise in what is a huge, you know, multi-million dollar film, the biggest opportunity that it's come. But think how long it took from 1987 to, you know, 2021 to have that opportunity. So it's not like we were not ready and waiting in the wings, is that we were denied systematically. Talk about institutional racism. We have lived it. We, 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 we know this. You know, I mean, I recently wrote a letter to the editor of the Washington Post because they basically had said that the um, 2021 Oscar nominations were the most diverse ever. And I said, well, yes, if you remove Latinos from that equation, it is the most diverse. But if Latinos are important to diversity and inclusion, then it's historically one of the worst Oscar nominations, you know, that we've had historically. And that's what people don't know is when they talk about diversity, they're not thinking about Latinos. And that has been at the fore. And yet we over index for media. And we are 25% of the box office, even though we are 18.5% of the population. So, you know, but we have to still educate our community as to why representation matters, why portrayal matters, how it impacts their children, how it impacts them getting jobs, how it impacts people think of them when they go into a department store. You know, all of these things have to get understood in the context of depiction and portrayal. Because how we're perceived is how people see us when we walk in the door for a job interview, when, your first day of school, you know, starting high school, uh, 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 you know, uh, auditioning for a spring play, uh, you know, all the roles that people think, well, you're not really right for that role, you know, because it was played by, you know, on Broadway by a, a white person. Yeah. And we've seen how people like Lin-Manuel Miranda has changed the equation on Broadway and has brought forth uh, new ideas and a new way of being able to bring audience to talent. Because it's really, once you have that opportunity, the sky's the limit. And we hope that this year we'll have In the Heights and we'll have West Side Story to, to, to really reflect our community as we know it today. So... I know that, you know, um, you, you and you mentioned it tonight, the, the 25 percent purchasing power in the box office um, and that idea that 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 purchasing is happening, even though that representation is not there. Um, you know, I, I, I wonder sometimes if that's not because, again, you know, we want to go watch something, right? We want to be able to relax. We've, we've worked hard through the week. We want to be able to do something. So I'm wondering, you know, as you think back to your lifelong experience of having watched TV and having watched movies, what are some of those moments that you can think back to where you're like, finally, I saw something that like told my story? Um, or maybe what are some of those moments on, on the other end um, where you're like, this is this is not it. I, I'm. I'm tired of seeing this same story. Uh, I know. Maurice, you, you bring up such a good, um, you know, uh, you bring up so, such a good uh, issue about what are some of the stories that, you know, really do resonate within the Latino community and why do we go see, you know, Tom Cruise over going to see, uh, you know, someone like uh, Nicholas Gonzalez or, or why, why haven't we, you know, built up Um, new images that compete uh, uh, in the same way for, for scripts and for roles and for narratives. I think part of it is that uh, there's an uncomfortableness in the fact that Latinos are not in the C-suites, you know, and by the C-suites, I mean the C CEO, the CFO, the, C the chief marketing officer, all the titles that begin with C are the C-suites. And we don't have people or enough Latino or people of color in those roles to be able to, you know, stand up to uh, the financiers of films who are accustomed to one type of film. And we also, so we have a problem with 
the exterior communication and the interior communication to 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 the interior the interior message to our own community it's hard because if latinos have not seen themselves for over 50 years on television and in film they don't have an expectation that they should see more latinos in film the the black community knows that and has understood that for a very long time why representation is important, why the first weekend box office of a new film is important to attend. But the Latino community still sort of, it's, it doesn't really think about it in those terms. And Hollywood says, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. And they know that this demographic is going to show up for, you know, every major, you know, uh, Godzilla versus Kong film that you know that that's shown in theaters, but we get sidetracked because so many of our roles get whitewashed. For example, just uh, about ten days ago, there was a story that ABC was casting for a pilot for a show called Maggie, and the show the the character had a Spanish surname, but they sent out the you know. Um, for the, they, they wanted to audition talent uh, of any race and any ethnicity for that role. And they wound up with, not surprisingly, a non-Latina in that role. And th so there was an immediate you know, uproar about the fact that they had a Latina character and they chose a non-Latina character to play that role. And their, their answer was that it was really not it was just a, a, a place note, a place marker. The name was a place marker. And because they had gone out for any race and any ethnicity for that role, they really weren't thinking that it had to be a Latina in that role. And so, and the argument was that then that they might bring in the Latina for the best friend role. And they confirmed that no, none of the Latinas that they had seen were being invited back for the, for the best friend role. So, we neither got the, the, the lead role or the supporting roles. <laughs> I mean, this is part of the, the problem, you know, that, that still happens where there's no clarity and there's always haze around these decisions. And at the end of the day, um, what can you, 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 you can't force them to do something that they, you know, have, you know, they've decided from a business perspective to do it this way. But those are the hurdles that we still have. So you said a lot, right? Um, what do you think is the reason why we don't uh, or aren't as educated about these issues? And because I've often thought about like, what can I do to get Latinos to be upset about this? How can we hit hurt them, uh, hit them where it hurts, you know, which is that bottom dollar. Don't go to these films. Do not go to opening weekend and spend your money on films that aren't showing us in our wholeness, in our entirety. And we're just such passive people, it feels like. I don't know what your thoughts are on that. It's such a complex, I really, you know, I, I battle with how to message to this community about this topic. Mm -hmm. Because once you get buy-in, I mean, if we had the kind of buy-in that the African-American community has about representation and depiction, we would be, you know, a very strong force to be dealt with. But the fractionalism and the very fact that, um, you know, that there has been little, that there's little expectation that there should be, you know, a, a Latino character or narratives, et cetera, is part of the problem. And that we don't have a single narrative, you know. The immigrant. Yeah, you know, we're, we're the, the immigrant is, is the, you know, f fallback you know, role and a theme that occurs. And yes, um, you know, but there is, there are so many other storylines, you know, that, that, that should be, you know, explored. And that's one of the reasons that the, the National Hispanic Foundation for the Arts has worked with eight universities at the graduate school level to promote that talent into the industry at NYU, Columbia, Yale, Harvard, Northwestern, USC, UCLA, and the University of Texas at Austin. And we've 
worked with this group of working on their, you know, MA in film or television or theater and tried to, you know, present them as the cream of the crop, which they are, um, to the industry. And yet with all of those credentials, with all of that training, they still find it hard to get into these jobs. And part of it is the guilds, which are the unions, you know, the writers guild, the screen, uh, the directors guild, um, uh, the actors guild, all of these unions are make it very, very difficult to cross over to the, the other side and to become a member of those, of those guilds. And if you're not a member, you cannot work in the industry. You can be an independent producer and produce independent content and max out, you know, your credit cards so that you can try to duplicate what Robert Rodriguez did with $7,000 uh, to, you know, to create his first film. But the odds are against you. You know, the okay. odds are against you to be able to make that kind of hurdle jump, you know, that, that, that's required. So, so much of this right now, uh, we've been working with the Congressional Hispanic Caucus and one of the, 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 the bills that recently passed was the National Apprenticeship Program. And the apprenticeship program pays the apprentice and it pays the employer. So now the guilds could have a way to create a program where not only above the line, but below the line, you know, the sound guy, the lighting guy, uh, you know, the gaffer, the, you know, the best boy, all of these roles are very solid middle-class jobs. And they could, you know, create this apprenticeship program that they would not even have to pay for, that the federal government would pay for. And it would train individuals because you can't learn this stuff in class. This is an on-the-job learning program. And the other above the line is, you know, assistant directors, assistant, you know, uh, you know uh, writers. You know, we, there's so many roles there that you have to be in the business to understand how it works and to learn firsthand, but you've got to get on the other side of the fence. So, you know, what we face is we're locked out. I mean, we're locked, the border locks us out. You know, I mean, Hollywood locks us out. And this is what's, this is the part that people don't understand. The right uses harsh rhetoric against us, but the left marginalizes us and invisibilizes us so that we are not relevant to either side. So, so we are smashed in the middle of a no-win situation. Mm -hmm. And yet this issue should not be a Democrat or Republican issue. It should really be about fairness. It should be about depicting America the way it, we are. And it should be an acknowledgement that Latinos are not just recently arrived, that we are here I mean, you think about the Cuban community and their experience, you think about the Puerto Rican community, that every Puerto Rican is a US citizen, regardless of whether they're born in the United States or in Puerto Rico. You know, the Mexican American experience, the multi-generational and you know, the Central American experience that came here because of war that we initiated. Mm -hmm. I mean, th those, that history of the Western hemisphere is not understood. And while we focus on China and a billion people in China, we're a billion people in the Western hemisphere. You know, if we could unite those economies and, you know, and I think that one of the, 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 the few that is getting it is Netflix because they have developed programming with Spanish language content that is appealing to US Latinos who are bilingual or Spanish dominant or bilingual and they're appealing to content that is for uh, millennials and Gen Xers on the, on the U.S. side. Mm -hmm. So they're really looking at this audience and they understand our numbers. And they understand their geographic positioning to Latin America. And they're taking full advantage of that. And so, you know, that is where I think the market is going to start to go. And, um, and I think we're going to see a lot of changes coming up pretty, pretty quickly. Mm. Just because Netflix is going there. If yeah. Netflix was not going there, it would stay static and stay the same. Yeah, you know, you touched upon um, a lot of important topics, one of them being the idea of invisibility. And that is something that as a Mexicana, as a Chicana, I have felt 
not just through the media, but in my education. It's like I was learning, you know, about the founding fathers, but I was also learning about um, the Underground Railroad. But where were we? It was it was nowhere. And to see that also be the case in the media as an educator, that is a big frustration for me, because when I try to um, encourage my students to pursue careers and, and things like, like that, I can't really broaden their horizons because you can't be what you can't see. And so if, if you're not out there and visible, you know, it's hard to have your, your students and, and young people aspire to be those things because they know that the odds are stacked against them. I, get, I, I go back to the expression, quereres poder, you know, where there's okay. a will, there's a way. Mm-hmm. And I do think that it is about uh, perseverance and it is about determination. Mm-hmm. And that isn't always easy because, um, you know, it takes this very strong-willed individual to stick at, with it after rejection, after rejection, after rejection. And, you know, and families don't understand this. You know, uh, families think, you should be a doctor, you should be a lawyer. Well, yes, those were good careers a long time ago, and they still are good careers. But careers in the entertainment media industry is equally lucrative. And that is what, you know, so we need more support. They, they, they look at, at the arts and they look at, you know, acting or producing or directing as being soft, but it's a hard, it's, it's a hard industry. And it is very recession proof. We're, we're seeing right now that, that, you know, even with the lull and the stopping of production and everything that's going on, the industry is going to bounce back, you know, and, and we will be in theaters very soon, you know. So the, 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 the very fact that young people want to go into this industry, more families and parents should be supportive of them because it is possible. I mean, I think about all of the talent that is on Instagram or TikTok, you know, or, you know, uh, so many of the social media platforms that are unique to young people. Um, They are so talented and so many of them are coming from the minority community. I mean, non-minorities find it really interesting to watch uh, (laughs) minorities. Which just to say that, you know, this generation doesn't look at life in the bifurcated, segregated world that other generations have looked at it. So we're, you know, this generation is one of the most open uh, and, and progressive that we have ever seen in anyone's lifetime. And, and so, you know, and, and we don't distinguish, we're, we're, you know, we don't see as many things, you know, being different, you know, we're not afraid of talking to someone of a different culture or a different race or being friends with someone of a different culture or a different race. In fact, we embrace that. Yeah. And so that is where the opportunity is coming because this is the market that, ha- that the entertainment industry has to focus on. And they're the leaders of choice. They're the choice makers, the taste makers uh, of, of, of today's society. And the podcast listeners, you know, millennials love podcasts. (laughs) (laughs) I forgot about podcasts. Exactly. I listen to podcasts at the gym all the time. And, you know, it, it, uh, it really is informative and it gives you information that you wouldn't get anywhere else. Mm -hmm. I mean, you wouldn't have this, where have you heard this conversation anywhere else? Right. Right. And that was our, that was our pitch too. We're like, he's black. I'm brown and we're both bilingual. And so it just works. <laughs> it's yeah. great. I'm so glad for you. So, so, so as, as I was preparing for um, this interview, Mr. Sanchez, I was thinking about this idea and you, you mentioned it, right? I think the black community definitely like, like if, if, if there's a movie, it, when get out came out, Black people were like, we have to go see Get Out, right? Because we're going to go support this brother. It's about us. It's a horror movie that centers black people. Like, we're going to go do that. Selma, Black Panther, all of those films. When Black Panther came, look. People were taking field trips. Schools were taking their students on field trips for it. The Hate You Give, when it came out, again, I went on a field trip. So, two things. 
you mentioned Black Panther. And so I do want to go to Disney here for a moment because I, I do watch as, as some of these larger studios do attempt to tell this story or do attempt to do this. And the thing about that is, is when Disney made Black Panther, Disney made a lot of money. Yeah, well, they made a lot of money with Coco. And that's where I was going next was Coco is legitimately one of my favorite Disney movies <laughs> of all time. And and they made a lot of money with Coco. Now, they used some Latino voice actors. And there were some Latinos that were part of directing and, and, and producing. At the end of the day, though, Disney made a lot of money. Yeah. So, I was thinking about when Malcolm X, uh, the movie, was was made, mm-hmm. and the story, you know, that's this folklore that's grown around the production of Malcolm X, the movie, because they ran out of money, and they went to rich black people and were like, "Hey, if we want to tell this story, we need money," and people wrote checks and 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 produced this movie. So then that brought me to this idea of the Latino dollar. And the power that is there, and as you mentioned already, 25% of the box office. How, is there a way to, to, to take that and turn that into, rather than having to go to somebody else to make that movie, is there enough power? Is, can that be an end goal of saying, hey, why don't we start a Latino filmmaking and that way you come to us and we'll go to you and we'll make our own stuff. And I don't have to ask Fox. I don't have to ask Disney, you know? Yeah. And I just want to add one more thing to that. Like I was thinking throughout this conversation of like Tyler Perry, who got sick and tired of, you know, waiting for a seat at the table. He, he said he built his own, you know, in your opinion, do you think we have someone that would be the equivalent of like a Tyler Perry? Well, Tyler Perry's, um, um, president of his company, uh, uh, I forgot his first name, but the last name is Aru, A-R-E-U. They um, took over his old studios and created the Aru Brothers Studios in Atlanta. Mm-hmm. And they are working to become, to, to become, to do what Tyler Perry did with the Latino community. And I wish them all of the, the luck that there is. You know, part of the problem, Maurice, is that, um, you, you talk about current day and Malcolm X and, and going to wealthy um, African-Americans to underwrite the final, you know, the finish of the, of the film. Latinos are at least 20, if not 30 years behind the black experience. We don't have the success. We don't have the proven track record that Latino, all Latino films are going to make, uh, uh, are going to be successful and thus provide a rate of return for that investment. So people who have, you know, made money are not, this is not the first place they want to invest in. You know, they, they probably would invest in Coca-Cola or Apple <laughs> before they would invest, you know, in a film just because it took them so long to make that money that it's hard for them to part with it for something that could be an unsure bet. And that, that's part of the problem. We have the Aru brothers in, in Atlanta who are basically re- associated with Tyler Perry and are trying to create uh, for the Latino community what Tyler Perry has done for the black community. But so many times, uh, because Latinos who made money are more apt to invest in Apple than in uh, a film, a Latino film, because it's not a sure thing. And they do want, they're business people and, and entertainment is a business. And they want to know that their dollar, their investment is going to have a good rate of return, not just get back their money that they put in, but to get a rate of return. And so there, it's complicated. Many times people say, why don't we just start all over? Well, you can't compete with billions of dollars that are already in the infrastructure of the entertainment industry and expect to, to, to make it work. I mean, one, one example is Robert Rodriguez who started El Rey Network. And while Robert has done a lot of successful things, it has been very hard for him to maintain this cable channel and get distribution, you know, uh, and, and uh, you know, to have fair carriage. 
Um, what is that? I'm sorry. Just, for, I mean. Well, you know, if you, you know, when you think about your cable, if you had cable, because now you may have cut the cord on, on all of this, but if you had cable um, and you had Fios or you had Comcast or you had, you know, uh, uh, Spectrum, to, to see what is on the schedule, the shows have to have carriage by those providers, those cable providers. And if you don't have carriage, well, then you, how can people see you? Mm-hmm. And, 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 the, and the cable companies don't want to put on channels that are not drawing eyeballs because it's kind of like they, could, they can make more money from somebody else who's drawing eyeballs than from someone who's not. So the, the, the challenge is enormous to kind of build your own, you know, uh, empire. And, and we should really be demanding from the Disneys of the world that they should do more, you know. And uh, while, uh, you know, after Coco, uh, Disney did not have, as far as I know, anything in, you know, following in the pipeline. They were lucky that they bought 20th Century Fox and that Fox, 20th Century Fox was already doing West Side Story. And now West Side Story will come out under the Disney umbrella and under the banner of Disney. But, you know, after that, what do we have coming up next? Right. You know, the same thing with Warner Media. You know, Warner Media has In the Heights. Mm-hmm. And, but what are the calf coming up after that? You know, I mean, what's in the pipeline? I mean, we get one film every 10 years and then we get nominated, you know, and then the Academy Awards say, well, you got nominated in 2018. You know, okay, well, thank you. We're supposed to be satisfied with little breadcrumbs. That really is what. And what they do is then they pepper the awards with Latino presenters. So then they bring out Jennifer Lopez and they bring out, you know, Javier Bardem and they bring out Penelope Cruz. They don't, they're not nominated for anything, but this is, you know, a sort of um, distraction, you know, to, to say, well, we have them on the show, you know. Well, yeah, but if, if you're not making films with Latino narratives that star Latinos in these sort of A-list roles, they're never going to get nominated for anything. Yeah. So um, when you talk about, like, starting to demand more of these roles, how can we do that? Like, what can a typical person like me do to really start to demand that? Because like when One Day at a Time was canceled, I was devastated. Mm-hmm. I absolutely, I thought it was well-written. It was funny. The characters were good. I was just heartbroken when One Day at a Time was canceled. But I mean, I felt like other than actually watching the shows that there's nothing else I can do. Like, what can we do? Well, I think that, you know, a Gloria, Gloria Calderon Kelly, the executive producer of the show, the showrunner, um, was very astute in, in using social media, especially Twitter, to get this point across. Even if you, you know, we're not talking about having to have thousands of followers, but if you have 20 followers and 20 followers retweet you on something that you're all in agreement with, I think it's really, it's, it really helps. And I think I was watching um, uh, a segment on, on CNN and one of the anchors has a book out called Huddle. And, and she was talking about how Huddle was this new way of where women, uh, young women uh, and uh, women in, in, in industries together are coming together to support each other and in ways. And I think that if Latinos could create, you know, a Latino huddle in entertainment, you know, where we um, do more things that, that discuss this conversation and get the nuts and bolts of information to the public. I mean, the public doesn't have this understanding of the media at all. No. And we should be taking marketplace issues to the audience of black and brown community that feel underrepresented in television and film. Yeah, that's that's super powerful. And, I, and again, social media um, has has changed, I think, our ability right to connect directly to the people. Right. Um, um, who who are making these decisions uh, for for better or for worse, as we saw in the last presidency, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> for better or for worse. Um, 
I think we would we would be remiss uh, if we did not take an opportunity and step back just a little bit and and really, um, you know, Lisette and I are both um, school principals during the day. Um, that's that's our day job mm-hmm. and and our night job too, because being a principal doesn't end uh, at, at the daytime. But we 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 love uh, getting a chance to talk to incredibly impressive people. Um, like you, but um, I bring up our role as educators because you have a past as an educator. So can you talk a little bit just about how like you moved from like an educator to law and then politics and then kind of this place now where, where, you're, you're kind of a big deal. You know, but, I don't know. Yeah, if you that's know my that. dream trajectory. How did you do it? Show me the way. <laughs> well, you know, I think it was, I remember, um, when I, um, I was, I grew up in San Antonio, Texas. And, um, I remember I was at a college prep school. This is, you know, the most hysterical part about it. It was an all boys school. And yet, um, we were getting towards graduation and I hadn't really applied anywhere for college. And so, um, my father, who was a barber, had a client who was the dean of school uh, students at St. Mary's University. And so it's like, all of a sudden, it was like, where am I going to go to college, you know? And my father said, let me call John Michelle. So he called him and he said, you know, Felix Jr. doesn't know where he should go to school at next year. And he said, tell him he's coming to St. Mary's. (laughs) 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 That's how I got to uh, St. Mary's for my first year. But it wasn't what I wanted because, you know, I wanted to live in the dorm and I wanted to be away from home. And so I applied to go to the University of Texas at Austin, which was 80 miles away. And I found out at the very last minute, the year later, that I had been accepted. And when I got to UT, it was, you know, a a world away from everything that I knew, but I felt so comfortable there. I always adapted really, really well. And so... um, I did a master's degree in uh, it, through teacher corps, and I was uh, elementary, kindergarten, uh, cert- and bilingual certified. And I taught kindergarten and first grade. Get out! You're joking. Yeah, yeah. And it was, re- and I and I uh, have twelve hours in dissertation left on my PhD in early childhood education. And so it was, you know, so much of this was I was just enthralled by that age period, and and it made so much sense to me. But I realized also that while I was, you know, um, getting this master's degree, that I was more of an advocate than I was, you know, a teacher. And so I applied to law school and went to law school, and then I came back to work in Austin. And when I was in Austin, I got offered the job to come work uh, at the U.S. Senate for a senator from Texas, the last Democratic senator from Texas, Lloyd Benson. And I got here and it was in the first weekend I had had adjusted. It was like, I love this place, I'm staying. You know, usually people come and then they get homesick and they wanna go home and they, and there's such a revolving door of people who come to work on the Hill and they here for two years or so, and then they go back home. Mm. I never saw that as, as the way you know, as for me. And I just immersed myself because I I always loved politics. There were two things that I did, you know, that I always did, which was I always watched the Oscars and I always watched um, the the Democratic and Republican conventions, you know, every four years. Some people did the Olympics, but, you know, (laughs) I was engrossed in, you know, Democratic um, uh, conventions no matter how late they finished, you know, because they weren't really made for TV at the time. But I came, I, I, I um, when uh, in 1988, when uh, Dukakis was the nominee for the Democratic Party, Lloyd Benson, whom I had worked for, was the vice president on the ticket. And so then I was asked to go to uh, Boston and be the liaison between the presidential and the vice presidential campaign. And in that capacity, I also created the first Latino outreach from a pres- Democratic presidential campaign ever. Wow. And, and then they uh, asked me to create a, a Latino celebrity fly around, which was to take a, a, a plane 
a small plane uh, and to travel to the key demographic areas to gin up the base. And somehow without a cell phone, IMDB or the internet, I hired a jet and got the talent to get on the plane with me and go to all across the country before the presidential election. So, and then I duplicated that for other presidential elections and it was really quite yeah. experience. So, and that's how I had one foot in politics and one foot in entertainment and created the foundation. That is so admirable. Who were some of the people that you were able to pull together? Um, uh, Randy, what's the name of the guy who was on American Idol? Randy Jackson. Randy Jackson. He was one. Eric McCormack. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a woman who was on ER with the time, and Jimmy Smits and oh, Isai Morales, and that's how I got to know them. Can I tell you, Isai Morales on my family is like forever. Bang. And let me tell you, he's as much fun as you think he is. <laughs> oh, the way he played Chucho. Listen, I've been in love since I was a child. <laughs> oh, my God. He, 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 he is very dynamic, yeah, uh, very charismatic, great. very genuine, very smart, very well read. Mm-hmm. And uh, he can talk the pants off anybody. I mean, he's yeah. really, <laughs> no pun intended. I say the same thing about Maurice, that he can talk the birds out of the trees. <laughs> that's a better way of saying it. Yeah, that's a better use that one, Felix. Don't use the pants off. I'm not talking pants off. Yeah, take the talk the birds out of the trees. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. So, um, this is kind of a final question as we get ready to wrap up. Um, so, having this be black, brown, and bilingual, uh, Maurice and I. We would joke with each other, mostly me giving him a hard time about the black-brown divide. Like he would do something and I'd be like, oh, there you go, keeping the black-brown divide alive. And uh-huh. he'd be like, ay, loca. But, um, you know, there was a report put out by your foundation that, um, and I'm just pulling a snippet out of it, that said that some interviewees pointed out that African-Americans are also hesitant to advocate on behalf of Latinos for fear of losing their hard fought yet still limited access. Um, can you speak to that a little bit more? Um, because we, in, in one of our episodes, we talk about how, unfortunately, there's this notion that there's only so much pie to go around mm-hmm. and that if I have a piece of the pie, I can't share with. You know, I think what people don't realize is that, um, I mean, when I was growing up, there were three networks. We didn't even have Fox, mm-hmm. you know? And then, uh, and, and then all of a sudden we had all this cable that came in and uh, the, all of that cable needed programming. And now we have streamers and all of those streamers need programming. And, and we have smaller platforms for shorter content like YouTube and TikTok, you know, and you know, all of uh, Snapchat, all of this requires new content. So we, there is, there is not a finite number and it is not shrinking. The number is not shrinking, it is enlarging. And we, we haven't even talked about gaming and all of the content that gets developed for, uh, for, for gamers. And, you know, and, and all of this is living in a digital age, you know, and I think we all know from uh, being uh, uh, sequestered <laughs> for, you know, a year plus, that we turn to all of these digital products and old products. So there, there is so much, what we really need is collaboration. Mm-hmm. What we need is not silos of this is the Latino content and this is the black content. I think that's why shows like Power on Stars are very, very popular because they have an equal representation on the storyline between Latinos and African-Americans. And ultimately, I can tell you that when, when I got to Washington, there were only four professional Latinos on staff. Out of 100 senators, there were four. And the people that befriended me and from whom I was able to feel camaraderie with were, were the African-American staffers who were greater in number you know, that we're here. And again, as I said to you, we are, you know, 20, 30 years behind the African-American experience in media. And if we could create more collaboration, you know, that is where I think 
we would find more gains and it would be lucrative for everyone involved. And I think we would achieve higher goals and, and more interesting narratives than we've ever seen. And I see that all in the future coming down the pike. ¿Ves, Mauricio? ¿Ves? Te estoy diciendo. Estoy de acuerdo. No es un problema para mí. Sí, por eso cuando hicimos este parque, dije, ¿dónde va a haber una latina, un afroamericano juntos? Juntos, Yo. hablando sobre temas este, contemporáneos. Sí. Just saying. <laughs> I agree. Well, we have just learned so much. We we have, I feel like, um, I, I'm, I'm challenged by that last piece there. That collaboration, I, I had just said that to somebody today, one of my staff members talking about collaboration, not competition. And um, and I think if we can get to a place where, where in both communities we understand that better, it will be a very powerful. So thank you again for joining us today. Thank you um, for inviting me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, yeah. Maurice. And we thank are going you. to, yeah, we're going to... Uh, close out in a very typical way. We have a tradition on, on Black, Brown, and Bilingue where we ask our guests to leave the listeners with one final thought. If anyone makes it to the end of the episode, what would you want them to walk away with? That the future is all within our grasp. It just takes uh, being really prepared and, 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 and you know getting all the educational training that you can get before you think about trying to find jobs in the industry, because this is really about a profession of, of people who are really prepared to be there. It's not just by finding somebody who's handsome or a woman who's beautiful, you know, to be an actor or an actress. It's much more than that. It's the writer who tells a story like nobody else can tell it and who, who can write dialogue that sounds like someone you've heard before in your life speaking. Authentic. And it's about the director who can position the, the narrative in a visual way. And the cinematographer that takes us deep into uh, the eyes of the, the characters that we're, we're listening to. And so there's so much here, but it's not, it's not for the faint of heart. And it's not for people who can't accept rejection. And it's not for people who are not well prepared. Mm. Excellent. Thank you so much. For Black, Brown, and Bilingue, I am Lisette Jacobson. And I'm Maurice McDavid. Muchas gracias for tuning in.